Our text today will be Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. Just a couple notes before we run into the text. You'll notice the title is The Righteous Judge. We would note for what we know about the law that in civil law, a good judge must punish crime. If he turns a blind eye to injustice, then he himself is corrupt and should be punished. We could think of it like this, stolen from an idea that Ray Comfort uses uh, in his evangelistic message, in his gospel message, that if a man were caught speeding and given a large fine of, let's say, $10,000, if the judge were to just say, that's okay, you don't need to pay it and let it go, then the judge himself would not be just. The judge requires payment for the crime, and if there is no payment, then there is no justice. So we want to keep that in mind when we talk about this righteous judge that we see in Genesis 18, 16 through 33. It is a passage that when we look at this narrative, we will learn about God's righteousness and man's judgment. God's righteousness and man's judgment. We could say this, that righteousness is the state of being just or morally pure, whether in one's own strength or on the basis of imputed virtue. We could also say that God's flawless, absolute justice in and towards himself, his prohibition of any transgression of the justice of his character, and his self-revelation through acts of justice are all aspects of his righteousness. Both the Old Testament Hebrew word for righteousness, which is sedek, and the New Testament Greek word, which is dikaiosin, convey the idea of compliance to a norm. And that norm is established by God. Louis Burkhoff, a theologian, probably gives the a very uh, a more concise idea of God's righteousness. The ethical righteousness or holiness of God may be defined as that perfection of God in virtue of which he eternally wills and maintains his own moral excellence, abhors sin, and demands, don't miss this, and demands purity in his moral creature. That would be us. So we need to keep those things in mind. I'll keep reminding you of that, of God's righteousness as we go through this passage. Uh, As we talk about what is happening here, of course, there are two main cities that are mentioned, which is Sodom and Gomorrah, but there are five cities that are in the valley where they are located at. Five cities that will eventually come into play for the punishment that will come to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Zoar, which is sometimes referred to as Bela. 
Doar will be the only surviving city, which we will find in a few weeks. There are three parts to this particular section of Scripture. 16 through 19 are the Lord's soliloquy, the internal monologue that God has. Verses 20 through 22 would be the investigation of Sodom's sin. And then 23 through 33 would be Abraham's intercession for Sodom. It is the first example of intercessory prayer that we have in the Scripture. Verses 23 through 33. So we have those three parts of the passage that we're going to go through. Again, it's the soliloquy of Yahweh, the investigation of Sodom's sin, and Abraham's intercession for Sodom. And over all of that, it is a passage about God's righteousness. His holiness, his defined perfection, his demand for purity amongst his creation. So that's what we have. That kind of sets some boundaries. We have some places to look at. And starting in verse 16. It says the men rose up. There were three men there. We know that one is the theophany of the Lord himself. The image of Yahweh himself is there. It says the men rose up from there after they have given Sarah the news that she will become pregnant, that she at her old age will have a child, the child of the promise. And it says the men rose up from there and they looked down towards Sodom. Remember, uh, Abram's at the Oaks of Mamre uh, that John spoke about last week. He's at the Oaks of Mamre, so they're looking down on the valley of Sodom, the, the, the valley of the five cities that are down there. He's looking, they're looking down on the valley. They're looking towards Sodom. That is where they are going. And it says Abram was walking with them to send them off. Now, Abram wasn't getting rid of them. He was being a good host, seeing them on their way seeing them on their journey. They're looking down on that city that we shouldn't forget was where there was a mighty victory of Abram through the Lord. A mighty victory of Abram through the Lord. Remember, they were victorious over the four kings that had come in. We recall that from back in Genesis 14. That those kings had come against the five cities that were in the valley and they had taken all the people or the people from Sodom and that Lot was one of them and then Abram goes after his nephew and is victorious, although his forces are small over them, drives out the four kings that were there. All the five cities of the valley understand the victory that was wrought through the Lord in that. And then we have the king of Sodom who witnesses the blessing that Melchizedek gives to Abraham. This was not something that occurred behind closed doors and they negotiated a settlement and the kings left. There were dead bodies littered all over the place. It was a victory of unknown kind and quality up until that point in time, and we have this blessing that comes from Melchizedek. 
king of Salem, that is the king of Jerusalem at that time, who gives to them, and the king of Sodom is a witness to this. We have to keep that in mind that that the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah understand who the Lord is. There is an understanding that there is a God. Right? But we also recall from Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, that when Lot chose with his eyes to go down towards Sodom, it says in 1313, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now remember what I said about God's righteousness, it demands purity from his moral creature. Perhaps it goes without saying, but it is worth saying that deer and dogs are not moral creatures. There's only one moral creature that God has created for this earth, and that is man. Okay? Birds are not moral creatures. Fish are not moral creatures. Just men and women are moral creatures. It is pointed out in 13 that they were wicked exceedingly. That is the way it is rendered in the Hebrew, which is rendered that way in the NASB, wicked exceedingly. Not only is it wicked bad enough, but it's the exceedingly part that modifies the wicked, that they are beyond bounds. They are seeking everything that is against the Lord. Everything that is against his desired ways for moral creatures. If it is for the Lord or against the Lord, they are choosing against the Lord. They are their own gods. So we have that image there of this, of them looking upon Sodom, and this is what is happening down there at this time, and Lot is still there. The soliloquy, that internal monologue that the Lord is having, that we are giving a, a picture of, that we are allowed to hear into his mind, and we have to address it tightly here about what he's saying. It says in 17, the Lord said, Yahweh says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Verse 18, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now a couple caveats. In the language here, Sometimes we have it rendered with a question mark in 18. I don't think it's necessary because what this is showing us is it's not God's indecision, but rather it is a statement about Abraham's situation that he will be the father of nations and that God is going to judge these cities. He is going to judge the moral creatures that live within these cities for being unrighteous. For not following the demands of a righteous and a holy God. We keep in mind the blessing that was given to Abraham that always 
lies up there, and, and we don't want to forget that. 15.18 of Genesis 15.18 gives us the first part of that blessing of the eternal inheritance that he and his descendants will see will receive it says on that day the lord made a covenant with abram saying to your descendants i've given this land from the river of egypt as far as the great river the euphrates that this that, that this this piece of the covenant this this uh, what the lord is going to do where he's also previously promised that they would be a great nation that the people that, that the people that would come out of his line would be a great nation, that uncountable. Remember, he took, the Lord took him outside the tent and they stare up at the stars. If you remember the picture from the other weekend, it's going to be like this. Your descendants are going to be so great, they are going to be uncountable. And through that line, Abraham, through the line of Seth, right, through that line will come the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise has been made. Abraham is the immediate benefactor. Those that are found in the Lord that come through that line afterwards will be benefactors also of that. And Abraham must know that there are consequences for failing to seek that righteousness of God. For example, one cannot say, I believe in the Lord, and because he saves completely, I can do whatever I want regardless of that because he has saved me. I can sin to a greater degree because I am fully saved. I would say you're not a believer if you say that. The scripture would say that too. Found in the Lord, found in, in the saving grace of Jesus, we seek to be more like him which is righteous and holy. And I'll talk later on about how we are clothed in his righteousness. But nonetheless, it says here in verse 18 and 17 and 18, shall I hide it from Abram, what I'm about to do? Since Abram will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then it says in 19, for I have chosen him, I have chosen this pagan, this idol worshiper. I have chosen him. And God has chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So now when we read that in, in a section, 16 through 19, we see that it isn't so much a question as it is a statement internally of what will come about through the line of Abraham and through Abraham himself. That he has been chosen to do this. That not because of anything Abram has done, but because God chose him. God revealed himself to him. God changed Abram's heart. God said, you will be the father of nations. You who previously worshipped idols will be the father of nations. Think for a moment to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. 
God knows exactly what he's going to do and will do exactly what he says he would do. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. But its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord knows exactly what's going to happen, knows exactly the way this conversation that's coming up, the way it's going to go. He is a right and righteous judge who demands purity in his moral creatures. Now we remember this is a text not only about God's righteousness, but about God's judgment of men. So, we would also say, it's worth saying, when we talk about the choosing of Abraham, uh, the way it is written in there, that God does do the, do, do the choosing. Exodus 5.1 says that there is a reason of God's choosing, right? There's a reason why God has chosen who he has chosen for his purposes, for his glory. And we notice here that we have an image in Exodus uh, this is before the Israelites will be released from Egyptian sl- uh, slavery. But it says, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Let my people go that they may worship me. God ultimately has chosen people so that they may worship him. Now we could draw a contrast here. The men and women of Sodom and Gomorrah worship themselves. They don't worship God. You see, we are meant for worship. We will worship something. Everybody is a worshiper, and everybody is very religious. Some are very worshipful and religious towards the true God, and other people are very religious and worship man in the things that men do, including themselves. We see it all around our world. He calls them out that they may be, and he will say then in Exodus 19, verse 6, that he desires, that Yahweh desires, you shall be to me, to God, a kingdom of priests, and what? A holy nation, a righteous nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God's desire that his people be set apart as righteous and holy, as representatives of him. So we think now at 16, 17, 18, and 19, should I hide from Abraham what what I'm about to do? Of course not. He's going to be the father of nations. He must know who I am. He must know my character. He must learn. Remember, Abram's in the learning process of the Lord, right? He doesn't have what we have. He has direct interaction with the Lord, and he is now learning who God is, who the triune God is. He is learning about God's righteousness and his justice. The God who, who, he is the one whose characteristics are not just the ability to do, 
to be righteous and to do justice, but they are him. He is righteous. He is justice. He is truth. He is love. Those are, that is who he is. When the Israelites come into, as they are released from Egyptian slavery, they will learn in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting verse 4, the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Teach my ways to your children, write them on the doorposts, talk about them when you're walking down the road, so forth and so on, right? I don't mean to belittle that, but that's what it says. It says, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to teach your children about me. That's a direct result of being descendants of Abram. That's a direct result of knowing who God is, right? And how do people know who God is, but they need to be taught who God is? God also tells us, for example, uh, these are not in the notes. I was thinking about it this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 8. There are consequences for not following the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19, it shall come about, the warning to Israel, it shall come about that if you ever forget the Lord, your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you to today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. These warnings, uh, I will not belabor the point, these warnings go throughout Deuteronomy, warning after warning after warning of what it looks like to not follow the Lord. This section of Scripture then in Genesis is about the Lord's righteousness and his justice, his judgment. And if you are found in the Lord as righteous and just, if you are clothed in the Lord's righteousness and justice, if you have taken upon yourself the righteousness that is only in Christ Jesus, then you will be an outlier in this wicked world. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 and 2, you will be found in Jesus. If I were to stop this message right here, in Jesus, you will be found as a resident alien in this world. You, will, you can live in the same hometown that you grew up in, but when you are clothed in Christ's Christ righteousness, you are no longer a citizen of that place. You are a citizen of heaven, and you are different than those that are around you. Depending on how long you've been a Christ follower, you will find out how much more difficult it is the further you go along as a Christ follower to be around non-Christ followers. It is very, very difficult to do because you have less and less in common with them. I can only talk about sports and the weather for so long or where you went to eat for so long until I'm bored and check out of the conversation because it really isn't much, but this is what we are anymore. We are outliers. 
God will say similar these, these things here that Sodom is an outlier on the other side. That there is a problem in Sodom because of their exceeding wickedness. And then he says in, the, and you could see, I could almost have this image of Sodom and Gomorrah as a burning wick of wickedness. That this flame is encompassing the entire cities of it. Everybody in the city is being engulfed by this flame of wickedness that is there. It is an inferno that is burning against the Lord and against all that he desires, against that moral purity that he demands. They are seeking anything but the Lord. They are seeking anything but repentance. And it says in verse 20, as we now go into the investigation of Sodom's sin, in Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, it says, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave, exceedingly heavy. Sin upon sin upon sin with no repentance. The, uh, the, 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 the retarders of velocity that you have in vehicles, right, that, that, that keep the speed down are gone. They're just seeking more and more and more of their own desires, of their own pleasures, of their own comfort. It says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. Well, Abraham was still standing before the Lord. It is burning like an inferno down there, burning against the Lord, consuming, and it will consume all of them. Even though this town has been the benefactors of a great rescue, <coughs> and Lot is down there too, the one who chose what delighted his eyes instead of what delighted the Lord. He is now found according the wicked behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord has heard, has not been lost, the wickedness that is going on down there. In this cry, we do not read this as a cry for help. They do not desire the help of the Lord. This cry is coming as the wickedness that comes up, that the Lord sees all and knows all that is happening. They are enemies of the Lord. They are opposed to the ways and the character of the Lord. They are opposed to the truthfulness, the righteousness, the goodness, the beauty of the Lord. They pursue only their own desires and their own wickedness. They are the ones who are wicked in their demonstration and sins against the other. Everything that comes into Sodom and Gomorrah is anti-God, including anti-creation. We will see that same-sex relationships, when you get into later sections of this, are a huge problem for them, desiring those over the right relationships that the Lord desires, that the Lord has designed us for. Everything that they do in Sodom and Gomorrah is against the Lord. In that situation, it's a dangerous situation. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 10 tells us this. 
Though the wicked through though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. Those that seek the wicked ways at times will seem to be profiting. But it all works against them. It works consistently against them. It is one more thing against them constantly. Malachi 3.18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The one who serves God says, I desire to have that purity that he demands. Even if imperfectly, I repent of my ways and turn back towards him. You see, there is, if there is no desire for you in this world for the holiness of God, heaven will be absolutely hell for you. Because heaven is holy, holy, holy. So the believer, the one that's found in Christ Jesus, is the one who desires to become sanctified like the Lord is, to put to death sin in their lives. Because he is holy. We remember from Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah, when he sees, he says that he sees the Lord on his throne and the, and the foundations of heaven itself are shaking to the voice of the Lord. He says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And then what happens, the, the the angel comes over with the burning coal and touches it to his lips and, and cleanses him of his sin. That's what Christ Jesus does for us. That these men of Sodom and Gomorrah, these men and women of Sodom and Gomorrah, they pursue self-rule, not God's rule. They have forgotten the flood and what God did where he saved a remnant of eight people in a sea of corpses because of the wickedness. That was going on. They forgot what happened at, the, at Babel, at Babel, of the separation because of the wickedness that is going on, the historical judgment that God has consistently given. They have either forgotten or chosen not to remember. With perfect knowledge, the Lord knows exactly what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows their state. He knows how desperately wicked their hearts are in their pursuit of the things against the Lord, and he is fully aware of their depravity and their need for judgment. They have sought their own ways and have been fully given over to the hardness of heart. We see examples of that in Psalm 2, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is particularly poignant where the Asaph, the priest, would indicate that when he looks upon the city, it seems like the wicked can do whatever they want without a care. Then he has that revelation of the Lord. He says, but their feet are on a slippery slope. They will seek those things and it will be their doom. He said, the Lord has shown this to me. And the scripture tells us that too. We ask ourselves then, when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, but to destroy a whole city, well, what does a, what does a culture look like that is exceedingly wicked against the things of the Lord? against the things that are righteous, that are truthful, that are justice, that are good, that are beautiful, what does a society like that look like in 10 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years? What does that look like 
when they're just seeking after more and more of their sinful ways. We see what happens in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. If you just turn there for a moment, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, what will eventually happen, if we just dive into verse 24, I I commend you to read that entirety of that section. But because in verse 21 it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the corruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Uh, Worshipping of man and his ways is what happens here. And it says in verse 24, what happens that eventually, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Uh, He takes off the restraints, and they are given over entirely. 2 Thessalonians says that he would darken their hearts, he would give them over to their futile thoughts and desires, he would allow them to believe false things, and they would be judged for it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll find that. We see this is, not only is this happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, but the judgment is deserved and warranted. The fact that they haven't been judged up until this point in time is just a sign of God's grace towards them. But the judgment has only stayed for a certain period of time. Then what we find then as we go into 23 and 33, is Abraham's intercession for Sodom, his intercessory prayer for them. Remember, Abraham is learning about the Lord. He's learning about Yahweh. He's, he's, he's finding out about God's character, who he is, how holy God is. Verse 23, it says these words, Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That sweep is also a scraping away. Will you destroy them utterly, including including wrapping up any of the righteous that might be there with them? Will you incorrectly punish the righteous with the wicked? Remember, Abraham's learning. He doesn't have the book. He has the promise. He's learning about God's demands of purity. Will you indeed do this thing? His question is genuine. He is learning about the only true God, and he has been let in on the conversation about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's contemplating this violent, removal of these cities down in the valley. Something when complete will stand as a warning to others. Their utter and complete destruction, yet his nephew is there. His nephew is there. Now I'm going to read verses 24 through 33, and then we'll talk about those. 
24 says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Remember what he said about a just judge. There must must be punishment for the crime. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abram replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes, recognizing what he has come from. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he, the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He, Abram, spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he, the Lord said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Verse 30. Then he, Abram, said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak, suppose 30 are found there. And he, the Lord said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. 31, and he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he, the Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he, Abram, said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. God's righteousness demands purity in his moral creatures. Now, a couple things. As I said before, this is an example of intercessory prayer. Excuse me, but you might say, well, hold on a second. Ah, it doesn't really sound like prayer. I mean, Jeff Reed just gave us a great, great teaching in Sunday school about what prayer looks like. And this doesn't quite look like this. But remember, Yahweh's standing, a theophany, an image of the Lord is standing right next to Abraham. He's just talking directly with him. We are talking directly through prayer, although he's not standing right next to him. Right? But it is a brilliant account of intercessory prayer. And there is innocence that is demonstrated by Abraham. He is not being, Abraham is not being difficult or recalcitrant. He is being innocent. He knows what will happen with the destruction. Like Noah knew what would happen when the door of the ark was closed. He is interceding for those. Remember, it told us that Noah preached repentance. No one listened. We have Abram asking, pleading, well, what if, what, if, what if you just find this tiny number? Right? It is an innocent display before a righteous and a holy God, and God is so gracious with Abram that he allows the questions to continue. He must know, for to be the father of nations, Abram must know the character of the Lord. God knows fully the state of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities on the plain. He knows how wicked they are. Abraham does not know the depth of depravity that they're at. 
That's why God is allowing these questions. He allows every question that Abraham brings to him about the state of these cities because Abraham is showing genuine concern for the people that are there, not just his nephew. We read those terms there. Abraham's just exploring, trying to understand. Understanding God's character, that he is truth, that he is justice, that he is love, that he is beauty, that he is wrath. He is understanding Yahweh, the Lord, as a righteous judge and a right judge who always does what's right and correct. We know that when the Lord is answering Abraham, it is not that he is relenting. Isaiah 46.10 tells us that the Lord knows the, be- the end from the beginning. He is graciously allowing those questions from Abraham, which will allow Abraham to have greater understanding of his character. Abraham is not questioning so much the Lord's righteousness or his, I should say, not questioning his judgment, but just concerned that there might be some righteous people in that place. And it ends with what appears to be the minimal acceptable number by Abram. If there's only a small, tiny number, Lord, Will you relent from utter destruction? And the answer the Lord gives is yes, I will. And that's where we end this section of Scripture. We had the internal monologue of the Lord. We had the investigation of Sodom's sin. And then we had Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. And then we have Abraham's intercession, all wrapped around the idea of the righteousness of the Lord. The Lord who demands purity from his moral creatures because he himself is absolutely pure. I've said many times from this pulpit about we have a hard time comprehending the holiness of the Lord, but there is even a separation in heaven between heavenly creatures who have never sinned and the holiness of God, separated by a sea of apparent glass before him. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holier, holiest. There is none like him. Imagine that this is the God who has revealed himself to Abraham, who will be the father of nations, and Abraham is talking to him as a friend. And not only that, but God is entertaining the questions. Answering Abraham so that he would know who he is so that he would have a generation of people that would know the Lord. So that when the Israelites are taken out of slavery in Egypt, that they would know the Shema, that they would be taught who the Lord is, and they would, do, they would know when Moses wrote down Genesis, they would see the Lord's actions and reactions throughout the Scripture. I should say just actions, the Lord does not react. He is a Lord of action only. Reaction is an indication that something happened that he wasn't ready for. But he knows all that will come. He knows the end from the beginning. So you see this in this. So we have to have some concluding thoughts about what this is. 
It is a passage about God's righteousness and as a result, God's judgment. Because remember, the judgment comes against crimes that are committed. The judgment comes against crimes that are committed. We see the image of of God's character, of Yahweh's character here. We see his righteous character, which precludes his righteous judgment. Because of his character, those who do not seek the same things will fall out of his blessing and will be judged. The judgment may be stayed for a certain period of time so that the remnant will be brought in, but the judgment will happen. Think for a moment about this. I uh, read it somewhere uh, this week, and it was a great, uh, I'm, not, I'm just paraphrasing. But if you're found in Christ Jesus, you're wrapped, in his, you're wrapped up in his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness, you're fully and completely saved, right? But as you're putting to death sin in your life, as you're putting those things to death, sometimes in small, small portions, sometimes in large portions, you're putting to death that sin in your life. It can be sometimes difficult. Sometimes the Lord will guide you in ways that you will be punished for your sin. Okay? That's his means of correction. Sometimes it's painful. It's that chastening that happens to us, right? Well, how about this? If you are found outside of the Lord's favor, he doesn't correct you. At best, he holds back the amount of sin that you do, but he doesn't correct you. You are left into your own sin, and they are building up against you as that, as that list of judgments against you day after day after day, hour after hour after hour, minute after minute after minute, and you are fully responsible for everything you do. Found outside of Christ, you were lost. Found inside of Christ, you're fully saved. You're wrapped up in his righteousness. The the Lord's righteousness is ours. Think now for a moment to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have, fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The only way to be saved is to be found in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament people who were saved were found saved in Christ Jesus, in his righteousness. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-eight through thirty. First Corinthians chapter one, twenty-eight through thirty. This uh, particular passage not only speaks to us as those found in Christ as resident aliens. But it says this, the base things of the world that God has chosen to be, uh, let's start in 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Uh, we could see in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So they follow the way, the, the ways of man are, are over and above the ways of God, right? Those are the things that are to them in Sodom and Gomorrah that would be their destruction. But he has chosen, God himself has chosen the things that are not, the, the unknown of the world. In verse 29, so that no man can boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, that, that in, that who became to us wisdom from God and became righteousness in sanctification, holiness, and redemption. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's from Jeremiah. So we have that image there of, of what happens, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are found as righteous through Christ Jesus. I understand that there are times that we do not feel righteous even though that we are in Christ Jesus. That's why we are given the gift of repentance. We are not perfect, but he is. He is a perfect savior. Found in Jesus Christ, we are able to repent of our sins, to turn away from our sinful paths, to turn away from those acts that Sodom and Gomorrah were doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified in Christ Jesus, right? The change of the heart that comes to us allows us to turn away from our sinful ways. Sometimes those sinful ways last. Seemingly, we can't get rid of them. I was talking to a young lady the other day who just said to me, she said, man, she says, I seem to have these other sins I've been able to get rid of, but smoking, right? My, her addiction to cigarettes, when we were a young lady, she said, I can't get rid of it. Well, sometimes it's just like I've mentioned here before, my wife hates me saying it, it's the dog trails in her backyard, you know? We have not had dogs for two years. Yet if you look along my fence, you can see the trail that they followed. We haven't had dogs for two years, and you can clearly see it. So it is with us. Sometimes we have sin patterns that we have to fight against. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says that the one who steals should steal no more. We don't pray that God gives us, gives us relief from this sin. We say we must put it to death every single time that it comes up in our lives. We have to be active in putting sin to, sin to death. Whereas if we were to see Sodom and Gomorrah, they, didn't, they weren't active in putting sin to death. They were looking for more and more and more sin. That's what we see as we get into verse, uh, Genesis chapter 19. So Sodom and Gomorrah stands as a warning about that righteousness of God that we all have to face. But found in Jesus, we have complete salvation, right? Complete, we have his righteousness for us. We don't want to follow that gospel of man, the good news that man says, just to follow what I have, follow after your own pleasures, your own desires, and you'll be happy. Psalm 119 verse 110 tells us this, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. The wicked have laid a snare for me, 
but I have not gone astray from your precepts. This is the deception of man, the desperately wicked heart that drives the engine of many a man and woman's life, seeking after more and more pleasures of the world and turning away from God's righteousness in his eternal life, in his eternal comfort. And that's what Sodom and Gomorrah represents, the apostasy of self-rule and the ultimate destruction that it leads us to. Consider as we close that the same things, uh, that are many of those same things surround, we are surrounded by those same things in this world today. Everything seems to be bent against the ways of the Lord. Everything seems to be bent against the ways of the Lord. I don't even, I mean, if we read newspapers anymore, I don't know if anybody really does, but you just look up the news and I could just, I could pick article after article after article that says bent against the ways of the Lord and towards the ways of men. We are bent against the good and beautiful things of God and the world is bent towards the things of man. Psalm 2 tells us that the world conspires, the world, the world leaders, the world governments conspire against the Lord. First, what is it? Two verses, three verses of Psalm chapter 2 tell us that. And we can see that in our culture. Everything is bent against the way of the Lord. We'll see that demonstrated on a small scale when we get into Genesis chapter 19. When Abraham even offers up his daughters for sexual relations with the township, but the men choose, they, they want to have sex with the men that are with Abraham, right? On a small scale of what we see in the world, right? Bent against the good things of the Lord. But as believers, we must not lose hope. We are found in the righteousness of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. We are marked as resident aliens, sojourners in a strange land until the time that we are called home. We, must, uh, we were given that example of intercessory prayer that we should pray for others around us. We should be concerned for all of those that are seemingly caught in the trap of the devil himself. It could be friends, it could be family members, it could be people down the street. We don't even know. We need to pray for them. Abraham gives us that example. Hebrews 7.25 says that our Lord himself is praying for us right now. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And think about these words from Robert Murray McShane. And I'll close on this. Think about these words of Robert Murray McShane when you are feeling troubled by things that are going on, by perhaps even sin in your own lives that you haven't put to death yet, that you're struggling with. He said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So I'll bow our heads. Glorious and heavenly Father, thank you for this day, your word, your kindness, your grace for us that we are able to live one more day, that we might give an opportunity, be given an opportunity to give the gospel to somebody, the good news, that we might be given the opportunity to praise you. Uh, please be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.